Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 146 for the week ending March 15, 2019, the St. Paddy's Day Weekend Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this jam-packed episode, Jay and I took a look at some of the following stories. Bob Conlon and Kerry Penman talk about compliance lessons from the college admission scandal. What does the new change in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy mean for messaging apps? What's the difference between concurrent, consecutive, and stacked sentences? How big dogs can even be defrauded? What about training wheels in leadership? That's an interesting topic. The business response to better compliance through fintech and cyber breach disclosures are a mess, says Matt Kelly. Dave LaFort takes a look at insider threats on his column. Jacqueline Jager looks at the FBI Office of Integrity. We review my five-part podcast series on the MTS FCPA settlement. Two great conversion events next week in uh, Houston and a webinar. If you didn't listen to Popcorn and Compliance, you should check it out because Jay and I looked at Captain Marvel and I preview my five-part podcast series with affiliated monitors Jesse Kaplan on emerging issues in healthcare compliance and monitoring. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 147 for the week ending March 22, 2019, the spring has sprung edition. As the St. Patrick's Day weekend has passed and spring has sprung all over the U.S., we are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, uh, today I am in New York City, so um, not quite sure what the New York welcome is, but welcome from New York. Well, welcome back from California. Uh, did you want to tell our listeners what brought you to the East Coast this week? So I did uh, spoke at uh, the uh, IIA Philadelphia Chapter Spring Fraud Forum, giving the keynote speech this uh, week. And now I'm in New York, where Mrs. Compliance Evangelist and I will be taking in uh, some theater tomorrow, seeing uh, Glinda Jackson as King Lear, which we're greatly looking forward to. And then on a little bit lighter note, uh, the musical Chicago. Sounds great. So uh, let's jump right in. Uh, Topic number one are what are some of the lessons from compliance professionals that we can learn from the college admission scandal? So this was a really interesting article by uh, Bob Conlon and Kerry Penman. Uh, Bob's the CEO over at Navex Global. Kerry is chief compliance officer. And so they took a look at some of the compliance lessons learned for um, from this scandal. And 
I think this this is one that reson- we talked about this last week, Jay. I think this resonates literally with everyone in America. And it's something that, I mean, you you went to college, your daughters are going to go to college. I obviously went to college. My daughter went to college, is in college. And admissions is something that touches really everyone. So we are, um, um, they had a, um, an idea or at least the uh, ironic lessons learned, uh, as they put it, about uh, trust and transparency and that people need to, uh, organizations need to, have that at all levels. So it was just a, a different look at this. It was um, almost a philosophical look, but I think that's the kind of conversations that that I'm certainly having with people, uh, literally everywhere from uh, the barber shop to uh, transportation to planes, uh, trains and automobiles, uh, and really everybody else. It's it's a topic that uh, is on the minds and lips of uh, literally everyone in America. I think. And I think it keeps coming back to themes that we unfortunately find ourselves uh, discussing on a weekly basis, culture, transparency, speaking up. And these are all issues that, you know, when you you applied to college, what, three different times, you have two degrees. I applied once and we don't know what got us in, right? It could be the resume. Um, I'm sure Mr. Rosen did not donate any buildings at the Wharton school. So <laughs> I figure I got in cause I was a kid from New Hampshire who wanted to go to Philadelphia, but, uh, it appears that there's going to have to be a lot more transparency to regain the trust of applicants going forward. Absolutely. So Jay, um, interestingly, um, and very quietly, the department of justice has changed the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this uh, article comes to us from FCPA blog and from two of our colleagues over at Miller and Chevalier, Nate Langford and Don E. Murphy Johnson. And uh, basically, this also kind of dovetails with the uh, problems that uh, Jared seems to be having now with his WhatsApp WhatsApp account that uh, back 2017 – when the DOJ first took aim at messaging apps and its corporate enforcement policy, it was very strict about saying that companies had to prohibit employees from using, quote, software that generates but does not appropriately retain business records or communications. And just as they've kind of uh, softened their stance on some other policies over the last, uh, I guess, uh, n- nine to six months, now that they're uh, kind of walking this one back or so, and they've uh, clarified it now, so they say that it does not expect companies to prohibit employees from using ephemeral message apps, but instead it requires them to implement appropriate guidance and controls over such communication. So as the DOJ seems to do, uh, they're going back to a reasonable standard. And I think that kind of makes a lot of sense because you really can't be absolute in doing these things. It still uh, would be better if you could get your employees not to use those devices. But if they do and they take contemporaneous uh, information, I think that will now be acceptable to the DOJ. Uh, Anything else you wanted to say on that one, Tom? So I was really uh, impressed by uh, their article because it it really emphasized the risk 
evidence-based approach you should take. You should assess how your employees uh, do communications, both internally and externally, and then manage that risk that you have engendered. Part of its education, part of its ongoing monitoring, but all of the things that you would see in a a best practices compliance program, uh, I think were incorporated into that change. And and uh, I would, I guess the only thing I would disagree with is your characterization is I don't see the DOJ softening their position. I see the DOJ modifying their position based upon concerns brought by commentators, brought by defense counsel, brought by the general public. And uh, as with the change in the Yates memo, uh, I viewed it as something that uh, was the DOJ really responding and modifying a policy, not to make it more uh, user friendly, but to make it more reasonable uh, in the in the real world of the marketplace? So I give the DOJ kudos on that basis. Uh, I can't refuse that line of argument, so I'm going to say what he says. Uh, next up, uh, there's been a lot of questions about sentencing over the past couple weeks, especially with the two different sentencings that. Paul Manafort got. So uh, we've got an article from the Grand Jury Target blog from Sarah Kropf. And what does she have to say about sentencing? So if you don't read Sarah Kropf's uh, blog or subscribe to it, you should. Uh, She really writes some great stuff. She's got a wit about her and a sarcastic tone that I think every lawyer appreciates. And uh, she puts out some great information. And since it's really from a field that I have, very little to know uh, uh, background in, uh, I always get a lot out of it. And she's a white-collar defense lawyer, criminal lawyer, a white-collar defense criminal lawyer. And so she writes about that topic. And this uh, blog post uh, could have been rack them, stack them, and, and pack them, but it's concurrent, consecutive, and stack sentences. And she goes through and explains what they mean. And she talks about the basics. She talks about a consecutive sentence and how that's different from a stack sentence and how that's different from a concurrent sentence. She gives um, the... Uh, a U.S. statute that governs it, and she talks about the sentencing guidelines, and she explains all of this. Then she explains the practical reality of how you negotiate in a plea deal, and and she ends with um, she usually has a couple of two nuggets of practical advice, and they usually uh, are se- it's self depreciating humor that she uses and points towards herself, and she says that lawyers need to take notes at sentencing hearings because a couple of years she was with a client. And the judge handed down two counts of 18 months each uh, to be served concurrently. Uh, at least that's what she heard and her client heard consecutively. Um, uh, and they had to actually go back to the probation officer and check the sentence and confirm that it was indeed concurrent. Um, so take notes. Uh, always good, uh, good advice for lawyers. Uh, and if you can't take notes, have a second lawyer there that they can take notes while you're doing the talking. But a great little piece by Sarah. And uh, kudos for uh, explaining this to her, to us going forward. And I think her wicked sense of humor even continues on. There's a little picture at the start of the blog, and it's a nice super stack of pancakes with a big pat of butter on top. So uh, kudos, Sarah. So, Jay, uh, next um, we, uh, we regularly blast Facebook, occasionally Google on this podcast. But today we're going to talk about it for a different reason. And um, this case, once again, you could not write about this in terms of a fiction book because fiction has to be based on reality. And life uh, in the real world is much more fiction-based than fiction. So how did Google and Facebook get taken for the tune of over $100 million? 
Well, it starts off that uh, a Lithuanian man, and I'll butcher his name now, Valdaus Rimsakaskas, 50 years old, pleaded guilty to his role in a complex wire fraud scheme that resulted in the theft of over $100 million from Alphabet, which I rather from Google, which is a part of Alphabet, and Facebook. Um, basically, he cl- pleaded guilty to one count of wire fraud in connection with a scheme that duped these two tech di- uh, giants into wiring millions of dollars into foreign bank accounts between 2013 and 2015, according to the SDNY. Uh, he also agreed to forfeit $49.7 million he obtained in relation to wire fraud uh, charges. Uh, what the scheme consisted was that he created a company in Latvia with the same name as a hardware manufacturer that Google and Facebook regularly did millions of dollars of business with. He then sent email messages to employers at the two companies, directing them to wire payments for bills for Facebook and Google that they legitimately owed but put into the bank accounts he set up, which were controlled by entities in Latvia and Cyprus. Uh, He spread the money out by wiring it to various banks all over the world, Slovakia, Lithuania, Hungary, and Hong Kong. But uh, Lithuania authorities arrested him in 2017. He was extradited to New York five five months later. So, uh, again, this is – I don't know if if you want to call it phishing, but it's taking advantage of people who knew that there were legitimate payments to be made – but they got confused by the fraudulent entity, and uh, you know, we it seems that at least once a week we have a, a, a an article about cybercrime or cybersecurity. So again, as you said, uh, there's got to be some basis in reality to have fiction, but not on this story. Um, next up, this is a really cool article that um, says that. Uh, basically, training wheels will continue to be useful in the future. It comes to us by Ken Wehrlerstein, and it's from the Analyst Syndicate blog. So the Analyst Syndicate blog is a very interesting new site that has recently come uh, on the scene, and it's analysts in the GRC space. And uh, there's a fellow named French Caldwell who put this site together. He is actually going to be uh, adding his voice Uh, in a podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. But uh, this article, I was really intrigued with it, Jay. Obviously, the title is intriguing. The picture shows a a boy, I assume a boy on a bicycle with training wheels. Uh, But the article was really, uh, I thought, went in a little bit different direction. And basically, he talked about having a worldwide conference call, uh, a visual conference call, and the steps that you need to do uh, to be present for that and to uh, not be playing on your phone, not be wearing a crossword puzzle, or don't, don't be doing anything else but be present for the call because you need to uh, pay attention to those who are on the call. You need to pay attention to what they're saying. You need to pay attention to their facial expressions just as you would if you were in a live meeting. And I thought it was a really interesting way to remind us all how important 
literally a visual conference call can be. And when you work for a multinational organization with people from cultures across the world, you have to have some cultural sensitivity. Uh, what you and I might take as satire, might take as fun, might take as uh, one um, type of remark between us might be taken very differently in a culture in a different part of the world. And when you work for that kind of organization that literally has a worldwide footprint, uh, you have the possibility of offending someone. And if not even offending them, certainly uh, uh, not taking, uh, not understanding the seriousness of what they're saying. So <clears throat> I thought it was a good reminder for the compliance professional because uh, we are typically dealing with people outside the United States. And as technology drives us uh, to greater and better communications, we need to perhaps think about some of the basics sometime. And that's why I was really drawn to this article and the training wheels uh, example that uh, maybe you need to get back to basics a little bit uh, and treat people as you would want to be treated, even on a worldwide conference call. Uh, the uh, other thing that I thought was kind of cool, Tom, is um, I think you remember the Jetsons. And I there do. was one point in the opening of the Jetson where um, Jane, his wife, gets up and she's not looking very good. She's got her bedhead. And all of a sudden she takes like a phone call and to- holds up this mask in front of her house, or her face rather. And she's all quaffed and looking pretty. So I thought it's good. It's kind of cool if you got this AI that's going to like sit on your shoulder and tell you to sit up and be attentive and don't have a petty quarrel with the person on the uh, other end of that video call. So uh, very, very cool uh, technology. And it'll be interesting to see how that AI develops. So uh, Jay, uh, next up, we had a article, uh, a couple of articles rather about uh, FinTech, but also the, business response to better compliance. And I took these articles really to to mean, or at least one interpretation could be, when you have a business response to compliance, that's what's going to drive compliance forward. But what were your two takes on these articles? So we've got them from two different sources that are in the show notes. One is from the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. And the contributors there are, um, let me see here, Matthew Epstein, who's the CEO and founder of, and how do I say that, Tom, Karen, K-H-A-R-O-N? Something like that. And uh, Robert Werner, who's the CEO and founder of Green River Hollow Consultants from Corporate Compliant Insights by Sunny Singh. And um, I guess basically what they're saying is that, well, the U.S. Department of Treasury and bank regulators have taken notice and are encouraging the private sector to explore innovative technologies, means of protecting financial integrity. In particular, their illicit financial activity conducted by networks and by sanctions. And uh, – they're uh, basically private sector innovation, including new ways of using existing tools or by adopting new technologies can be an element in safeguarding financial systems. So just as you said, Tom, the uh, sometimes there are certain responses by technology that uh, the regulators tend to get behind. And uh, this was uh, a speech at the ABA on December 3rd by uh, Undersecretary um, Seagal Manlicker. 
So this is what the article talks about, about using these ecosystems to manage. And what's very interesting is they talked about our favorite Brazilian energy company, Petavesa, and they had this very interesting, uh, I guess it would be like a, a spatial chart showing people who work for Petavesa here in the U.S., and what kind of uh, entities they set up. And then it looks like they were all living in uh, Katy, Texas. So uh, to use the AI to do that was very cool. And the second article that we have from Sonny Singh, he's uh, not only using uh, AI, but he's also using uh, big data and machine learning and wondering uh, if you could basically say that if you got some red flags on a company and you were able to do analysis, maybe the company came back with 100 red flags, but the real amount of the red flags is after you use the machine learning and the AI would be 20. And this could lead you to more efficient business processes when you're doing your due diligence. So those are my two takeaways. Do you have anything else, Tom? You know, I guess, Jay, the overall theme for me was uh, one – uh, that in the financial sector, we have the regulators talking about a business response, but also that that is um, really how compliance is, is moving forward so dramatically and so quickly by understanding it's a process, by not having the lawyers running it, by not having the lawyers write policies and procedures and sit backing and pontificating, but by moving compliance into the business process of the organization and fully operationalizing it, you're going to make compliance obviously uh, more important uh, to the organization, but you're also going to make the organization run more efficiently. So uh, the more we can put uh, these types of innovations into compliance, I think, uh, the better companies are going to be run. And what we saw with the Ethosphere 2019 World's Most Ethical Company Awards was that uh, the ethics premium of 10%. And part of that is the efficiencies of fintech, regtech, and other technologies uh, into what I call comtech. Great. So uh, it wouldn't be a week in FCPA if we didn't hear from the coolest guy in FCPA, Matt Kelly. Uh, unfortunately, there's not an emergency. He's joining us. But, um, Tom, why don't you let us know why Matt Kelly is thinking about cyber breach disclosures? Well, he generally thinks about that anyway, but he wrote about it this week, and he wrote about a new report examining how public traded companies have been reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission and I don't want to say the, the the report was damning, but it certainly uh, raised some eye, at least raised my eyebrows. You have the medium t- median time between when a breach happened and when it was discovered was 35 days. And the average time was 123 days. Uh, the median time uh, between breach discovery and breach disclosure was 26 days. And there was one company that took over a year to disclose. Uh so think about that in terms of GDPR, where you have literally 72 hours. Um, so um, uh, the, uh, the U.S. is so far behind uh, Europe in uh, not only data privacy, but data protection, and that people here in the United States are being uh, victimized where corporate America is really apparently just sitting on their hands. The types of attacks um, – were broken down as well. Um, uh, uh, The largest number was malware, but phishing was right number two. And phishing was uh, one of the things, frankly, that was used uh, against Google and Facebook. And 
it's not really rocket science to defend these things. Um, it, it's just good common sense and good business practices. If you get a email from someone you don't know directing you to send money somewhere, uh, check it out. If you get an email from someone you do know uh, directing you to send money somewhere, check that out too. If you get an email from the CEO directing you to email money and you're not the CFO, check it out. And even if you are the CFO, just pick up the phone and call your CEO. So, uh, some, I, you know, disconcerting news certainly, but, um, it shows that uh, the regulation needed in the United States is is pretty strong. I, I share with one of my favorite phishing attacks, which I've got maybe 20 times in the past six months, that it comes from the CEO of my company, and he's in the middle of a meeting, and he needs me to call him right back. And then he sends me an email and says that he needs me to go out and get $125 gift cards and then scratch off all the numbers on the gift cards so I can read the codes to him so he can go out and buy something. So uh, I don't know why they keep sending it to me, but I just never – I can't picture Vin being too busy and me needing to go out and buy 100 gift cards for him. You know, Jay, you, you, I think you – you know, I, I have three degrees, but you seem to be much more sophisticated in terms of your email clientele. I'm still getting the, the offers from the Nigerian princesses uh, to come to America and share their dowries with me. So uh, kudos. Well, I'll, I'll get you on their list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we have uh, something from uh, Dave LaFort, who's the uh, – Compliance Week editor, and they recently just got back from holding uh, Compliance Week West. And um, basically, what's on Dave's mind is he talk. He's talking about insider threats are often the hardest to detect. And um, as we're talking about, you know, setting up, uh, a, a, you know, a robust program for ethics and compliance and. Dave talks about some of the recent uh, things that have happened, uh, especially he brings up what just happened with the um, college uh, bribery scam to get people into uh, college. He talks about cybersecurity threats. And one of the things that he said is that the biggest risk in ethics and compliance has to do with who to hire in the first place and risk officers need to have their character antennas up at all times, most importantly in the hiring policy. And then one of those closing remarks, he says, at the conference, uh, Galliard Capital CCO David Liu described the importance of a practitioner getting to know people in the organization and in turn making sure employees know the tone that you're trying to set. And he said, quote, every lunch alone is a wasted opportunity. You should be meeting with people and building trust at every opportunity. And then Dave closes by saying, you're not going to catch every money-hungry soccer coach or opportunistic exec, but building relationships, having your moral radar on high, and propagating a tone that ethics are as important as profits put in a better position to catch a potentially embarrassing situation before develops. And I think that quite nicely echoes what we're always talking about. If you're in compliance and you're behind the desk, 
you're behind the eight ball, that you need to get out there, you need to engender uh, a relationship with your employees and let them know that you're somebody that they can come to, and if there's a problem, they should speak up. So uh, kudos to Dave. And uh, we have another thing from uh, one of our favorite writers at Compliance Week. Uh, Jacqueline Jager is taking a look at the FBI Office of Integrity. Right. So the FBI Office of Integrity began in 2007, and its initial director was Pat Kelly. And Pat was uh, pretty open uh, within the compliance community, talking about the Office of Integrity and compliance within the FBI. Uh, Pat Kelly is now retired. And... uh, it's uh, I believe he's been he's retired. Uh, and Jacqueline caught up with uh, Catherine Bruno is uh, currently the assistant director of the office. And she talked about the office, the how the office is structured. Um, it has uh, one uh, for compliance and one for ethics They're, they she talked about their training. She talked about the risk analysis and then the mitigation and remediation steps that they would engage in. It was really an interesting discussion to see how the same concepts that you and I would talk about to a corporation in terms of tone at the top, written standards, policies and procedures, and a code of conduct, a risk assessment, authority, uh, and resources to achieve compliance officer training and communications, discipline and uh, incentives, a uh, robust uh, internal reporting system. Uh, third parties are not as big an issue with the FBI in terms of their compliance program, but ongoing monitoring and oversight. So all of the, the basic concepts of a hallmarks of a 10, uh, 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program pared down a little bit, you see directly in, in used by the FBI. And it was a very interesting interview and, as always, uh, great writing by Jacqueline. And for those who are really interested in how uh, our nation's top um, police force the FBI uh, really has embraced and put compliance and ethics directly into their organization. It was a great review uh, for that and a reminder of how they do that. So I just have a little pithy comment. Um, In one of the answers, they said that uh, the FBI personally trains all incoming employees within 90 days of their arrival, and then they come back in and make sure they're doing the right thing the right way. So my question is, uh, were Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Andrew McCarthy, and James Comey somehow absent on the day that they were going over the ethics compliance, or what happened there? So uh, it's not clear what happened there. They may have uh, used their executive exemptions on those. Certainly they missed the, uh, the email, um, don't put stupid shit in emails uh, lecture that I uh, <laughs> want to give. Um so uh, that just goes to show when you miss a uh, compliance and training exercise, you need to uh, make it up. So thank you for letting me get that off my chest, Tom. Uh, following up on your blog post series on the MTS FCPA settlement, uh, Tom moves to the audio format for a podcast there series. And what is it that you covered in that series, Tom? So, Jay, uh, we took, uh, or rather, I took a look, the Royal, we took a look at uh, the MTS FCPA settlement, uh, looked at the background, the bribery schemes, explained the missed red flags, the individual indictments and lessons learned. If you like uh, consuming information through podcasts or the audio format, this is the podcast series for you. It's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, JD Super, Panoply, and I'm also now on Spotify and Corporate Compliance Insights. 
Jay, I don't know if you're going to be in Houston on Tuesday, but if you are, I hope you can join Katie Smith and myself at Conversance Roundtable Lunch uh, from 12 to 2 on Tuesday. Um, it's going to be a, a great roundtable session where we're going to take up some uh, behavioral issues, some key performance indicators, and really have an uh, exercise for some of the top uh, compliance professionals in Houston. We link I link to registration information. It's free. Uh, immediately thereafter, Lewis Sapperman and I are going to uh, do a uh, webinar with uh, Caitlin Conlon of uh, Conversant on employee engagement. And so it's sort of a back-to-back. If you can't make it to Houston, I hope you can join us uh, for the webinar. For those of you who have been eagerly awaiting uh, Jay and Mai's next episode of Popcorn and Compliance, that came out last Saturday, where we took a look at Captain Marvel from the compliance perspective and uh, perhaps a few others. So uh, for you movie aficionados who've been wondering when our next episode would come out, it's now out. And Jay, I know you have seen uh, my blog post this week, uh, which uh, previewed uh, a little bit my five-part podcast series I do next week uh, featuring Jesse Kaplan from Affiliated Monitors. But Frankly, Jay, it was um, probably one of the top most important blogs I have ever written and certainly uh, one of the most important uh, podcasts I've done where Jesse uh, talks about a compliance solution to the opioid crisis. And it really was just stunning to me how uh, a compliance analysis and procedure can be used in the opioid crisis, it's not the solution, but it's certainly a solution. More importantly, it's a business solution. So I often say compliance is a business solution to a legal problem. But the way Jesse articulated it, compliance is a solution to not only a healthcare problem, but a societal problem. And uh, so if you didn't get a chance to read my blog post uh, yesterday and today, I hope you will uh, listen in on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, or um, on iTunes where uh, I release them all at midnight on Monday. You can line them up and listen to them back-to-back, where Jesse really articulates the problem and then the solution. And I hope our healthcare providers and our legislators and everyone else who this problem and this crisis touches uh, will listen to this and take to heart what Jesse has laid out because it, to me, is an elegant solution to just a, a horrific problem. So, as I said, I, I can't emphasize enough that I think it was probably the most important couple of blogs I've ever written, certainly the most important couple of podcasts. That's only two of five parts. Jesse goes on to uh, uh, discuss several other emerging issues in healthcare, but I, I really have to emphasize his compliance-based solution to the opioid crisis. It, it cannot get too much play. And I hope that uh, people who will listen to it will really take it to heart and take the concepts that he's articulated to heart as a way to get um, uh, a handle on this, this problem from a business perspective. Well, I know both you and I have um, posted links to it on LinkedIn. So when people are catching up on the weekend, uh, it should be easy to find uh, Tom, Tom's first two blogs. And as he said, uh, everything will be queued up and ready to go uh, starting Monday morning. So um, I think we've got everything covered here, Tom. Uh, how's your bracket doing? So, uh, you know, busted on the first day. Uh, Hey-ho. 
It's been a long, uh, hey. long, long dry spell for the compliance evangelist. All right. Well, Mr. Rosen doesn't play that, but he's happy that his daughter's got 98s and 96 in their word voyage uh, test this week. So we're celebrating here in California. Um, so I think I'll take us home on right. behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 147, 147 for the week ending March 22nd, 2019 the spring has sprung edition so thanks for listening with us this weekend and uh, we look forward to talking to you next Friday to tell you about the week in FCPA that was hello everyone this is Tom Fox again I hope you've enjoyed this episode of this week in FCPA if you have any questions you can email Jay at Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at the week's top compliance and ethics stories, certainly through our own eyes. I hope your bracket has not been busted, and I hope you'll have a great first weekend of spring. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join Jay and I next week where we take a look at some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.